Hi, I'm Suzanne Rowan, wife of Robert Rowan, who was Brentford FC's technical director until November 2018, when we lost Rob at the age of 28 to a fatal cardiomyopathy episode. Michael says some lovely words about Rob in his podcast, and keeping Rob's memory alive is so important for those that knew him and loved him. We have done that through our relationship and support for the charity Cardiac Risk in the Young, and Cry is proudly partnering with the Football Journeys podcast to raise awareness of sudden cardiac deaths in the young and the need for increased awareness, screening and research. Since we lost Robert, we have raised over £50,000 in his memory and we have held screening events to allow young people to have checks which could detect serious cardiac issues. This month, we worked with Brentford to provide 200 screenings for fans aged 14 to 35 and there will be more screenings in Rob's hometown of Gorkoddy and in Dundee. To find out more or to donate to this wonderful charity and cause, visit Cry's website www.c-r-y.org.uk and click donate. Anything you can spare will go towards research, support for families and also heart screenings which could save a young life. Thank you for your support and enjoy the podcast. This week we took a trip to a very busy and noisy Brentford Football Club training ground where we grabbed an hour with the club sports psychologist Michael Caulfield as well as his dog, Paisley. The episode was typical of Brentford. No frills, no ego, but brilliant. We spoke to Michael about his career, from running the Professional Jockeys Association, AP McCoy convincing him to become a psychologist, and then on to the work he's done in cricket, rugby, darts, dressage, and most of all, with the bees. The training ground sits in the flight path of Heathrow Airport. And we apologise for the sound disruption of planes, tractors reversing whilst they treat the pitches, and most endearingly, Michael's dog Paisley. We actually start talking at the moment a plane goes overhead. It only lasts a few seconds, don't worry. Let's get going, Michael. We've, we've just been uh, trying to work out what our roles on this are, and uh, me standing as Clive Tilsley alongside my co-summarisers, Fraser and Lee, I've got with me. Um, we're gonna, this is called Football Journeys, and we're going to talk a lot about your journey in football, but I don't think we really do you justice if we just focus on football. And we always like to start our guests from the beginning. Quite often we'll be talking about some young boy or girl and kicking tin cans around or whatever else, however they started in their love of the game. But your early beginnings were not necessarily in football, but in horse racing. I think I'm right in saying that you were, when I saw you walked in, you weren't enormous, but you were not tiny like a jockey, but you were a jockey at at first. I I want to be jockey. I was a wannabe jockey. Um, A failure, like many things you do in life. Um, I was a hopeless school leaver. I didn't pay enough attention at school to anything other than kicking a ball around, chasing a ball around, just not really concentrating, much to my parents' disappointment. Um, And I was unemployable. I have no shame in saying this at all because... You don't always have to have 34 A-levels, so I had none. And I thought, now what do I do? Uh, and then I worked in an off-licence, as one does. I worked in a pub, as you, as you do. I went to a lot of gigs and concerts, and basically was useless. I was f- lazy, fat. That was my dog, by the way, but we'll no doubt hear from him later. Welcome, Paisley. And uh, I went to the races one day with my dad, Market Raisin. We lived up in Lincolnshire. And I noticed that all these people were leading around the horses in the paddock. I, I thought, well, that looks interesting. So I asked a couple of them, what do you do? They said, well, I get up in the morning, I ride the horses, and I bring them racing, I muck them out. I thought, I could do that. Things I couldn't, I'd never sat on a horse before. So after disappointing my father for a year, and he was in the legal trade quite successfully, I said, I've got an idea. He went, what's that? I said, I want to be a stable lad, which wasn't in the great plan when he sent me to school and the rest of it. So I went away to learn to ride for three months and I went to see a trainer where I live now near Lambourne who is a, a grand national winning trainer Captain Forster traditional you know type of the countryside and I said uh, hello sir I've been recommended I can have a job with you he went yes I've heard about you he says can you ride I went no you really can't have a job then to which I said allegedly I said but if I could ride would you give me a job he went yes I said I'll see you in three months and I turned up there three months later having learnt to ride at a school in Sarencester down the southwest, And that was in 1979, and that's how I got my first job. And then from there, I formed a stable as football team, darts team, snooker team, pool team, anything team, because I had no currency as a person. I was a sort of middle English bloke with no... Everyone else at the yard, I'm not embarrassed to say this now, because there were great days, it was called Jock, Scouse, Taff, Mick, Brummy. And me, I had no identity, so I 
formed a football team, a dance team, a snooker team, to get me going on the social side, because I had no currency as a rider, as a stable lad, as a jockey. And that's what got me going, and, they, and that's why they noticed me. But pulling all these people together from different backgrounds all over the country, etc., we'll come back to your early beginnings, and we'll talk about the PJA in a minute, but it brings us to where we're sat here. Listeners will probably hear, we're, we're at quite a noisy Brentford training ground in Jersey Road, Osterley. Um, planes going over overhead to always planes I can assure you yeah. always planes and that's the environment you're in now you've got work you're working with a diverse group of young men not just from all over the country but from all over the world and that fascination with bringing teams together and all these different stories together I mean is that where you end up and I know we're going to fill in the middle during the course of this this episode but I hope so I hope it's where I hope it's where I still end up because I was sitting on the M4. I live about 65 miles southwest of Brentford, down towards Swindon. And I had a word myself. Just I got to the end of the M4 today before turning right into Hounslow. And I just sit in the traffic lights for a couple of minutes, listen to the horrors of what's happening in other parts of the world. And I say to myself, every day on arrival, and I say to myself, get ready. And I just literally say, get ready to say thank you. Because to be in this environment, I've just had lunch with two young players. Uh, who haven't got a lot in common with growing up in terms of... And we've just been there... For, I thought I was nearly late for this podcast. And at the end of it, they both said, God, thanks for that lunch. It was brilliant, Mike, wasn't it? And I said, well, it was brilliant for me. I don't know what it was like for you, but it was brilliant for me. And they both suffered very, very long-term, at some point, career-threatening injuries. And we just started talking about confidence as a footballer, which is everything. And I said confidence in your body as much as confidence in your ability, because I think all footballers have confidence in their ability. But sometimes the body lets them down and they talked about how they felt during during injury and how they felt their career was over I always mention my Ledley King story because everyone asked Ledley King how his knee was but they never asked Ledley King how he was and the players related to that and that's what I do now I don't try and dress myself up as an academic or a brilliant guru because I'm not I just think that I was always told that they want someone to talk to and when I mean someone, I mean athletes, elite performers. Because in 1999, when I had this mad idea to become a sports psychologist, and I loved, my ambition was to work in football, because ever since I watched George Best and Bobby Charlton play, I wanted to work in football. And I was up walking up in the hills one day, up in Lambourne, and a brilliant Olympic coach was happened to be in the same car park at the top of the hill. And he was going to work in Lambourne that day. And he went, Michael, what, how are you? Because I'd retired from the, resigning from the PJA within two years. I said, I'm trained to be a sports psychologist. He went, good idea, good idea. He said, I'll give you a tip. I said, what's that? He goes, they just want someone to talk to. And he'd won six, he coached six Olympic cycles, six Olympic golds, and it stuck with me. And to this day, and I know we're sat with Fraser and Lee, you've played the game, that I still think players still want someone to talk to. Not necessarily about the high press, the low press, the hamstring, the new contract. They just want someone to go, oh, Thanks for that. And you start, and I, I think one of my skills is to start a is to start a conversation and timing, and the timing in that conversation is crucial. Do you find, and I, I'm appreciative, we've just whizzed over the fact that you spent 15 years as the chief executive of the Professional Jockeys Association, which is a huge achievement in and of itself. But do you find quite often that that these young boys are venerated, they're gifted, huge and huge amounts of money, they have huge exposure. They just want to be talked to like the boys that they are, rather than the superstars that people think they are. I see them as the boys that they are. I don't see them as superstars, Premier League footballers, whatever. And we were discussing street football, and we were discussing Brazilian football this morning. Again, just in these wonderful conversations you get in a treatment room, which I often sit in a lot. And they all started playing football in streets and parks and beaches and schools. And then it becomes really serious and really structured. And one of my big things here is playfulness, because I think players just want to be playful. They just have to be really now quite good at football, whereas their mates still might be playing in the street or the pub, car park, whatever it is. But they still want to have they still want to be playful. They really want to be playful. And I don't see them as superstars, I see them as people. And to quote Roy Hodgson when he retired, we thought, from Crystal Palace uh, last season, he said always remember these are not magnets on a tactics board and I don't treat them as a magnet on a tactics board absolutely not they're not magnets on a tactics board they're living breathing emotional people 
Well, in terms of how it all started, we talk about superstars and human beings. After 15 years as a CEO of the PJA, um, it was a legend of horse racing that kind of accidentally, is that the right way of putting it, brought you into sports psychology? AP McCoy needed someone to talk to. It, it was an accident. And, and, and you were that man? I was the man because I was the chief executive. Sounds so grand, doesn't it? It does. Uh, and we were doing things 30 years ago no one even thought of doing down around welfare and well-being and mental health. And I knew that even though he was the greatest champion, he was also tortured and haunted by failure, as many people are. Tortured by it. And I got to know him in his younger days when he was an angry, very bitter, at times angry rider. And one day we had a few holes of golf. And he was suspended at the time. He was out of action or injured. And we, um, we came in off the golf course. Pointless game of golf because he was so cross and we were just basically killing time with him. And he said, I need to go and see a sports psychologist. And he went, well, I said, okay. He said, well, Richard done what he did, his predecessor champion. I said, it worked for him, maybe it'll work for me. So he went to see a sports psychologist or two, but it didn't work for him. And we met up again. And then he said to me, which I'll never forget, he goes, you should become a sports psychologist. He goes, you're the only one who gets my madness. He goes, with respect to the psychologist, they didn't get my madness. They told me to take time off and rest and put my weight up. He goes, utter madness. Don't get it at all. You get my madness. And then he said the fatal line, which he's never done, mind you, because I wouldn't ever. He said, I pay to see you. And when he said, what I said, you pay to see me if I wasn't in this job? He went, yes, because you get me. And I thought, well, if he says that, that, that's probably good enough for me. And that's when I started researching, training and studying and starting out on that process, which nearly broke me because I'm not a natural classroom person. Well, quite. And, and I think you, you do your, your profession down a little bit by saying that people just want to talk. There's, there's a lot of learning that you had to do to get yourself in that position. I think the expertise that you have is crucial. You're not just someone who goes for a walk with your dog or on the golf course with players. There's a lot more to it than that. There, there is. Um, it might start with a walk with the dog, because you might, that's where you might gain the trust, and that's where people might learn to talk to you and think, actually, I could tell this person what I really feel and what's worrying me and, and torturing me almost. So building trust uh, is the start of any process with any, anyone in life. And here at Brentford, it's not just players, it's staff as well, coaches and the whole range of people. But building that trust takes time, an awful lot of time. And if that means sometimes a walk with a dog or a cup of tea in the local cafe, I, have, I don't have a desk here, I don't have an office here. Uh, and I would never ask for a desk or an office here because that puts a barrier up. And I'd rather just have freedom to roam. So this morning has been the, the gym, the treatment room, the canteen uh, and the training ground, car park itself. But I would never... I wouldn't request an office with a desk because I think that puts a barrier in the way when you're talking about your really private emotions. See, when, you're, when you are working for the club, so Brentford employee, what is the relationship like in terms of what you will speak to a player with and then what a manager, because a manager may come to you and say, how did that conversation go with such and such player? What's well, the... I've been very lucky because I've had five managers in my career. Can I call it a career? Yes. He, he says looking at you. Uh, in no, well, no, in, in, in chronological order, I started with Gareth Southgate, he's done okay. I then had three years with Steve Bruce, who I will defend like a father because he's a very fine man and a good coach and a good person. He left, we had Mick Phelan, who's had a great career as a player and a, a number two at Old Trafford for years with different managers. Dean Smith here at Brentford and, and, and now Thomas Frank. And I think it may be because I'm not 21 myself, but not one of them has ever asked, what are you talking to about that player? Not one of them. And I know that not one of them ever would. And if I work for another manager, I hope he won't either or she won't either. Because that's not how it should work. And if, it, if they were doing that, something's not right. Because if they saw me walking around talking to a, a player or any member of staff, if they go, what was all that about? Then you've, you, you're done, you're blown. Because it's not about that. And they trust me. Sometimes the conversations are not very deep and meaningful. But they're important. Because I still believe that every conversation counts in some in some way, not even small, but it still counts. So they don't ask me who been, what, what have you been up to, who have been seeing, what have you been. What's, they might say, "How is everyone?" I get that a lot, and you can say, "Well, I think we're a bit flat this week, or a bit lively this week." And I tell you what, we need to be on our toes this week. So I might do that, but in my three different clubs and five different managers, I'd certainly never, never break a trust ever.
ever. Um, the starting point for you, though, but, um, in getting into team sports was was cricket. And Fraser and Lee know I'm a bit of a, bit of a bore when it comes to cricket. I love my cricket, but um, it's a team sport. But it's a team sport for, for selfish people. That's my line. It's the most brilliant team game played by the eleven most selfish people I've ever met in my life. It's a great team game, but by God, they're selfish because it's their numbers. And it's those individual battles as well. And I always think the ultimate test of um, of your mental faculties is playing test cricket because it's that bloke at the other end is going to knock your head off and everyone is looking at you in that moment now football is an encapsulation of all those tiny little moments in little tussles between a, a left back and a right winger or a center half and a center forward i guess my question for you is were you um was there a different focus a different pivot in terms of what you were dealing with with cricket players very different I use the religious energy. Uh, if I go to a, I don't know, a Christian church or a Catholic church, you have a certain way of behaving and sitting and singing the hymns, or even the way where you sit, how you sit, you might keep your shoes on. If I went to a mosque or a temple, I behave differently. I'm actually at cricket tomorrow, the day after we're recording this podcast. Uh, today I'm sitting here in a very dodgy outfit because it's mine. It's a jacket, it's a waistcoat, it's a pair of very weird looking corduroy trousers because they keep you warm still because it's cold tomorrow it's club traction and trainers because that's what they want but today doesn't demand doesn't demand that or doesn't and I don't think that me wearing tracksuits at Brentford would look great or wouldn't get me the best environment for to talk to you so I respect the church I go to on the given day and rugby and cricket and football and I've done darts I've done dressage I've done three day eventing they're all very different and I respect the church I go to on that given day and if they ask me to dress and behave in a certain way, I will. And then I become myself once I'm through. I does, I, describe for the listeners, I would say you look something of the country gent, it's probably a good way of putting it Michael. Um, bringing you into this environment, you look as though you're still considering that description. No, I'm just, I don't, I'm shocked or flattered but I'll take both. <laughs> But bringing you to this environment of a group of very working class boys that wouldn't necessarily, in their younger lives, have come across someone who's dressed in the way that you're dressed. Someone that lives in the countryside with dogs and horses, etc., etc. They would have likely come from places like inner London. Yeah. Do you find that, therefore, that, that makes you a bit of an alternative character with an alternative voice that they're intrigued to hear from? I think at this club in particular, and I'm very fond of Brentford, and I hope that in 20 years time I'm still very fond of Brentford and you can look back with even better memories than we've got at the moment they've allowed me to be myself and I can't thank them enough for that because I live in the countryside I walk 10 miles a day with my dogs I live near the horses I love the farm I love the rural farm life I'm as likely to watch country as I am to watch other stuff at times mainly for the very good weather forecast but they've allowed me to be myself so if I came in here trying to not be that I think they'd suss me out in 30 seconds and so if I want to wear a pair of cords to work because I walked in the mud this morning which I did at half past five so there's no point me not wearing that because you just get wet and cold where I live so they've let me be myself and I'm not embarrassed about that I'm just not embarrassed about have you ever have you ever had a place where you haven't been able to be yourself and you've had to walk away I think I had one sporting experience but it was actually not not football when I was actually talking to a player about this. It just didn't work, it didn't click. And sometimes in life, it just doesn't click. And we're all still on really good terms. In fact, I keep in touch with a lot of the people from that club. But professionally, at that one given moment, and life's about timing, I keep banging on about timing and luck. Uh, and it was the wrong time for me to be at a certain club in a different sport, and it just didn't work. It's not because we, none of us were any good, it just yeah. did not work, and that happens in life. And when I get asked to talk about these things, and I'm always pleased to do so now, is you, you sometimes always look for a reason of why something went right or wrong. Sometimes you can't put your finger on it. And so it, wasn't, it didn't work, and it ended after half a season, and that was fine, and we're all still in touch. It just didn't work, and that happens. That generally does happen. For all the science and all the measurement and all the information and all the books, sometimes it just doesn't work. I'm tempted to ask you this question about um, whether you would talk to yourself about that because the whole point of a psychologist a sports psychologist I think a lot of people have this impression that your job is to direct the focus of the football player the rugby player the cricket player on football rugby cricket how can you be successful at something 
but from my understanding of it, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, it's not that. It's actually about turning the focus back on the human being. How are you? Are you getting through your day-to-day? Do you apply those same things to you? To answer your good question very simply, yes, I do. I have that inner, not inner battle, but I have that inner, inner conversation all the time uh, about my role. I'm about to say something I probably regret now because it's going to be recorded, but I think the reason I'm semi-competent at this job is I'm not perfect. I think a lot of people in some walks of life, maybe in even with psychology now, and again, this might haunt me in 10 years' time, but psychology now has got a little bit too marketing-based for me. And someone actually rang me yesterday and said, Michael, we, can, we could monetize you and turn you into a brand. I just put the phone down after saying, no thanks. I don't want to be a brand or be monetized because I don't want to move away from the person who sat in front of you this afternoon. And I am a bit quirky. I know that. I'm not perfect. I'm not academically brilliant. Uh, I'm not a superb scientist. I'm not a, I'm, I, I, do I read the r- latest research? Yes, but could I quote it on you tomorrow? No. Uh, I trust my instincts, my experience, my knowledge, and I'm not perfect. And I think one of the strengths of that is that does appeal to people who think, oh, he's not, you, you read some people, I get up at five, I make the children breakfast, I pray for half an hour, I go to the gym for two hours, I meditate, I do mindfulness, I stretch, I solve the world, uh, then I come back and make hummus for lunch, whatever. They live a perfect life. And I go, That's, I don't do that. Post it on Instagram, which is actually quite devastating to the mental health of people that see it on Instagram. Yeah, and that's why, I, if you follow my wretched stuff on social media, it's mainly about my dog, the birds, the sun rising, the sun setting, and, and not a lot more than that, as Fraser knows, because we exchange pictures of sunrises and sunsets. So I don't present myself as Peter Perfect because I'm not. I think that is the appealing thing for a player, though. And I think I've heard you talk about it a lot. I've, I've had you. Would you call it lecturer at yeah, the university? Presenter. Presenter. I hope. Like it. But within the psychology world as well, I've seen, and not to badmouth anyone, but I've seen a lot that have tried to overcomplicate it. And we, as a student, it was, um, there was 30 of us in a room. Most of us hadn't had any kind of formal education since we were 16. A lot of the stuff we were taking in day to day was quite overwhelming. But the boys took to you because we spoke about neuroscience, which I didn't even know about as a, as a player, really but you simplified everything and spoke the language of a player. Do you think that's, well, I know it is, but do you think that's a, a big selling point for you that you try and keep things simple? You don't claim to be perfect, but you try and keep things simple and it's easy to digest for a, a player. My critics would say I oversimplify it, to which I say, fine, you're going to overcomplicate it because it's not about, if I'm the presenter, and I remember the days we first met, that wasn't, those sessions weren't about me. They're about you and the other 29 delegates and students in the room. It wasn't about me at all. So all I do is then, how will that impact upon the people attending that lecture that afternoon or that morning? So that's all I'm bothered about. Now, if that makes me a bit simple and a bit not very clever, I couldn't give a shiny hoot. It's about what was best for you on that day. You might see me at a different forum. It could be a university. I don't know what it might be. And I might have to try and come across as a little bit not like that but I will try and always think what's the most impact I can have on this group of people who are with me in that room and that's really where I start and finish and Fraser I hate to say this I'm not clever enough anyway to do it any other way and I don't want to be and I always say to people who ever want to hire me for any lectures and talks I say if you want a professor of science and guru you've got the wrong person because I I can't do that I genuinely can't do that I think it's, it's just not me and then I'd be lying to myself. When I realised I was being an absolute moody, hopeless, just not very good at what I was trying to, to do. Um, and I've now reached certain birthdays in my life. And I think I was saying to someone this morning about a, a colleague of mine who works in football in, in Belfast. He's into his 70s now. Uh, and he's about to retire. But he's going to be kept on in a, in a consultative role to help this organisation in football club. And I said, I hope you do, because you pick up so much when you pass certain birthdays and your hair changes colour and your physique isn't as it used to be. It wouldn't look great in episodes of Love Island. You do pick, you do pick up stuff. Um, so I made some horrendous mistakes, assuming everyone was like me and thought like me and wanted to be like me. How stupid was I? And it's taken me a long time to realise that that wasn't what was needed. And I'm still trying to work on that, by the way, because 
we, we, no one ever fully cracks self-awareness, me included, but I'm trying to get better still. Probably quite a good point to take you back onto the journey and your start of the football journey was, you mentioned Gareth Southgate, but you joined him when he was right at the beginning of his managerial career at Middlesbrough, where I think he had a decent start and he had a difficult end to it, but he would have learn a lot about himself, a lot of self-awareness during that time or during the time you were with him. We, we still discuss it. Uh, we finished 13th and 14th in those first two seasons, then 19th, which tells you uh, what, what happened in the third year with the club. In a, it, was in, it, was, it wasn't so well run in that final year for reasons which are now well documented. The chairman owner said, yeah, we, we handed him a hospital pass. But he was 34, 35, transitioning from playing, and I was there joining him for the first time, and I was only well, but I was in my mid, mid to late 40s, so I was still pretty raw. Uh, I mean, made some, I should think, pretty big mistakes along the way, but I'd like to think that I helped him with his, I don't know, learning as a manager and a leader. Uh, although he does possess ridiculous self-awareness, I have to say, for one so young still, uh, and empathy with, human, with, with players and people. So I always thought, and we do joke about this, and he would, I hope he's not embarrassed for me to say this, that... I always knew, even then when he was 35, I thought this is, this is an exceptional young leader, let alone football coach and manager, which he's become, but just a very good leader of, of people. And I noticed even then, because he went straight from the dressing room into being their head coach and manager, but not one member of that squad, even 15 years later, has got one bad sentence to say about him as a manager or as a coach or a leader, because he treated them with so much respect. There's a phrase in football about it being... a results business yeah. and I always think it's football and sport in general is a, is a real encapsulation of, of how it can be very difficult to come to terms with outcomes and I think the best way that I can describe that um, we're sat here at Brentford who have had lots of playoff failures um, until the final success of it and they would have had a whole season where they finished, and forgive me if I've got the finishing places wrong, but the time they didn't get promoted to the Premier League, they would have finished third or fourth. Um, and then 90 minutes of football dictated that that season was a failure. They may as well have finished, what would it be, 21st or where, however you need to finish to not get relegated from the Championship. So to have an entire year of your life then encapsulated into 90 minutes, which then defines that as a failure, I'm not really sure what my question is. I'm just making a proposition about how football is such a merciless, outcome-driven industry. How do you work with players to help them be satisfied with their yearly, daily work, even when, based on the results, it doesn't look as though they've been successful? It was also, in that, in that season you referred to when we finished third and didn't make it, it was also the best season in our history up until last season, which then became the best season in history. And hopefully this season will even improve it again. So although we, the final goal, which was promotion, hadn't been achieved that season, and it seems 20 years ago now, but with two Saturdays to go, it was on. And then because a result went in our favour, which tells you an awful lot the night before, we had a 12.30 kickoff, and... The players, by their own admission, looking back now, were exhausted at 12.30 the next day because having been saying that if you win this, you, you'll be promoted. Um, so it wasn't a failure. It was just, at that time, the most brutal setback. And I come from horse racing, as you know, originally, and they always say, get back on the horse and go again. Because of the COVID situation, because the season had been condensed and elongated and the next one had to start on time, we literally had, I think, I think it had 11 days between not going up and starting again, which is in football terms, for as you know, isn't, you normally get the six to seven weeks and everyone heads off to Toromolinos. <laughs> we didn't really get time to go to Torquay. So I think we just came back and people think there must be massive inquests and they're not. It was a game which went against us. It was a freakish goal which which beat us. And all we could hear, and it wasn't at Wembley that night because of COVID, but all you could hear at Wembley that night was the air conditioning. No crowd noises, nothing, just air conditioning. Uh, so it was a strange year. It was an it was a setback rather than ultimate failure. I'm going to be really embarrassing myself here again. This group of players and, and staff they work it out pretty much for themselves. I met them then at St George's Park for the start of the new pre-season, uh, and I hadn't been with them at the end of that season because of COVID and lockdowns. And 
we didn't know we didn't know what we know now and so I will I wasn't I didn't come in for three or four months because of COVID because it was literally players and key support staff who were doing the hands-on work the physios the, the doctors SNCs chefs etc so I hadn't seen them for a number of months and uh, I don't mind admitting this even in a broadcast situation that uh, I was going to meet them at St George's Park because there was no overseas pre-season camps and we had a week at St George's Park uh, and I remember going God how do I play this I haven't seen them since Feb- March March was the lockdown wasn't it March so I've missed them March, April May. I hadn't seen them for five months in a football environment so I put on my best suit I put on my absolute electric blue presenters the blue suit which you've seen Fraser and I knew that I was walking in to, to lunch that day after training and I, was, I hadn't seen him for five months. And I had my best suit on, my best, I had a suit, shirt, tie. I looked, for me, a million dollars. And I thought that was the way of going, have you missed me boys? And I walked into the, into the lunchroom then, and they all turned around and there I was looking like Elvis. Um, but that was my way of reintroducing myself to say, come on, let's, let's just try again. And I can't think of what, in fact, no, there wasn't one conversation looking back with negativity there was regret and annoyance and oh, we should have done it but it wasn't we're not good enough we'll never get there it was just no we'll have to have another go now and there and, th- and they did it in style you yeah. have, um, i know you, you talk a lot and especially on social media about sort of the unsung heroes at clubs there the analysis people the chefs whoever it might be do you almost impart some of your knowledge and wisdom on them because i know as a player how much of an impact having a chef can make it someone oh. the the first person that you see in the morning someone you spend a lot of time with it's <laughs> basically just managed to pick he's up some, some cones that are lying around i know you can't see it on a podcast but he's, a, he's, he's he's got character that dog but, but these sort of unsung members of staff and um, how important do you think they are at a club and Oof. and even with some of the role that you do within psychology how how they can subtly do that as well the basic human need still fraser is to feel wanted and valued and again, I hope that I don't embarrass myself or you on this podcast. But when I arrive in the morning, if it's Maria or Joe on the gate or Rob or James in, or Phil, who normally does the checking with COVID, they're my first portal call. And actually, someone did say to me this morning when I eventually got to my, not desk, but where I leave my bag in, in the sports science room. Um, I can't remember exactly what time I got here this morning waiting for my COVID test. But about 20 minutes later, I made it to where I was meant to put my bag down in in, in the room where I leave my bag and one of them said where have you been for the last 20 minutes I, I pulled up beside you in the car park 20 minutes ago I said well I haven't got past the canteen yet because I saw three people in there plus one of the chefs and I think it's not my job and duty but I do go around and see everyone here during the course of the day because as you can see by my dress sense I'm not out there training I haven't got my boots on so if I can spend 10 minutes with anyone from the players welfare officer to the ground staff to the, to the medical staff, to the chefs, to the definitely the analysts who teach me so much, the media staff just across the car park here. That's what I do because it's five minutes of your day. It might it might be helpful to them. I find it helpful, interesting. You find out more about people and how everyone is. And I think it's a big part of my day. And I learned that from Brian Kidd, who scored a goal in the 1968 European Cup final for Man United. I learned that from Bob Paisley. I learned that from Shankly, I learned that from Bill Nicholson, I learned that from the managers of yesteryear. And that was part of their job, because the, the training grounds were smaller in those days. As Sir Alex Ferguson said, when he joined Man United, he had six members of his support staff. By the end of it, there were 36 members of support staff. You know, that's a huge increase in people, and I think people want to be spoken to. And I like to go and see them and find out how they are and how they're doing and how their new baby is or how their house move might have gone or whatever it might be. You might, want to, you might want to say that bib and cone off Paisley at this point because you won't hear another word. But no, I do enjoy meeting people. And I think they enjoy just having five minutes away from yeah. talking about football. It's a, it's a big value of this club as well. I mean, I remember seeing when, when Thomas won Manager of the Month and usually the manager gets presented with a, a trophy. But he had, and I think it went quite viral on social media, he had the chefs in the, in the yeah. photo, he had the Andes in the photo. We came here last Christmas, Christmas before, to give a talk and they said... Um, you better buy two Christmas jumpers because it's Christmas jumper today. And it's just a club that makes anyone who comes in feel included. And, you know, for me being here, I was, I was an apprentice here in, in League Two, League One, and it's the same sort of humble training ground. It's got a lot of the same people. And it hasn't lost that 
humility, no. Premier and the reason you're hearing a few background noises on this podcast, which I hope makes it because it proves it's normal, yeah. it's the tractors and the bulldozers doing doing their bit for next season to probably give it an upgrade. And I've said recently in a programme interview, kindly for this club, I hope we never lose our humility because we actually are a bit rough and tumble. We are the this is this isn't seven star. This isn't Dubai, Abu Dhabi, and it's not. A, I always say it's not a spaceship. It will and it will need upgrading as hopefully the club and team improves. But we we're not a spaceship, and we and everyone's welcome, and it's pretty normal. That, that playfulness thing that you touched on before does that play into this a little bit when a player comes in from you've just signed Christian Eriksen who's had five star treatment and unbelievable facilities. You've got someone like Ethan Pinnock that's come through Dulwich Hamlet and you said these are all kids that grew up wanting to play football and they, they probably had the most basic things as kids. Does it almost take them back to that a little bit? I think it gives them a real... I don't want to say humility. I think it reminds them of why they first played football in the first... why they first started playing football. And you mentioned there Christian Eriksen, who, by the way, what a wonderful young man, but Ajax, Spurs... Inter Milan and now his club football is here at Brentford I haven't been to Inter Milan Ajax's and Spurs training ground recently but I gather they're quite impressive this isn't that I think that is the least of the things that would concern him when wanting to come to Brentford it's about the people in the club rather than the facilities now it's, you need good pitches and you need to they can be fed well and trained well and looked after well and we've got a lovely yoga pod now which is fantastic we need those things of course but actually, I think it reminds them of why they first started playing football. In fact, in the playoff interview, which got lost in the joy of last year when we went up at Sky, at Wembley on Sky, was Emiliano Marcondes, who got the second goal. He was interviewed on Sky. And he'd been released. He was being released, but he still played as if his life, life depended upon it. He said, it's so funny, when I first joined Brentford, I came here and the, the, the door on the outside toilet was falling off. And it was. And it, it really was. And there's lots of porter cabins here. They've been here for years. Now, in time, they probably get replaced. But I find it quite beautiful that it just reminds us of... We didn't, we didn't get born in spaceships. We really didn't. And I've been at other clubs when we've signed players from the big clubs. And they go, actually, it's quite nice coming to here where you don't get fingerprinted on the way through and you press a button and everything just appears out of the ceiling for you. So I think we haven't, it's not lack of facilities. We just don't... I'd rather have a good person than a good building. Give me that all day long. I really would. I think that's something that I've now, every Saturday and Sunday morning, there's a local park and I go for a walk with a coffee and there's grassroots that play. And it's my favourite part of the weekends. We've usually got a game at two o'clock on Sundays, but when I'm, I'm there watching those kids, it's quite emotional because for me, those were the best moments of my life. And for me, those kids don't even realise that I think they all want to play at Wembley. Well, I, I, was, I was walking my dog through the village where I live in Lambourne a couple of mornings ago. I go off early, but I'd gone for a good walk, and by the time I was walking back, it was the school bus was about to leave to go to the local school in Wantage. Lots of kids. And one of the bus stops is the, the British Legion car park, big concrete car park. And there were six kids, including two girls, having a kickabout in the car. Eight o'clock in the morning, waiting for the school bus, I thought, game on. <laughs> I, love, I love seeing that. And actually, that's where we all started. We all started playing in the school car park, waiting for the bus the backfield, somewhere. We didn't all, and I hope we don't lose that. I, you know, when I see that Man City appointed under six coach last year, and I think, good grief, just let them play. Let them be kids for a bit longer because you, you don't turn them off the love of football and being in that car park or being or playing three and in. And last year I travelled to Oman, um, the, the neighbour of Dubai, which isn't really Dubai, and it was a cricket tournament. And out the back of the where we were playing at the Oman Academy was this... I can only say it wasn't. It was a football pitch, but it wasn't. It was just gravel and stones, and the nets were different sizes with holes in, and the little corn was falling off. I noticed that every day after school there was a 28-a-side game going on. Now somewhere in that 56 kids, as a good footballer, probably you might end up playing somewhere in some league. But those were the best days of his life too, because I look at Wayne Rooney, who stopped playing now in his recent documentary. He was the ultimate street footballer. And you don't want to knock that out of them. You need to refine it and structure it and tailor it, but never knock that joy out of them. And playfulness for me is a big thing in football. 
Lee used the word Wembley, and I thought I was thinking everyone's got their Wembley. Mine was at St Mary's back of pitch school where me and my mates used to go and have that kick around. Mm-hmm. Like, there's the cages for you in Battersea. Yours would have been Hamden rather than Wembley, but it would have been somewhere in Motherwell. Well, we actually called it Wembley. Did you? Yeah, everything was a Wembley. That's because Scotland might be England then, that's why, wasn't it? <laughs> Let's be honest. Yeah. But those, those are the moments that I miss because footballs became... A job? So, yeah, and no matter how hard you try to enjoy it, there's so many other factors that come into it. Making sure that you're prepared, making sure you're recovered, you can't go out the day before, mm. you can't go out the night off because you're meant to be recovering. And as a kid, you'd play all day long and you didn't get tired and you didn't worry about nutrition and you didn't worry about having to do the, the right things. And I think watching those kids for me... Yeah. We were discussing that today here because we had a player here He's moved on now, he's, he's playing the championship and uh, he had a tattoo in his arm of his home street where he grew up in the Midlands and I asked him one day, so what is that tattoo because I just I was intrigued by it, he had two, he goes those dustbins there were the goals, those drains were the, were the touch lines, that's, that's my house, that's my nan's house in the corner, it literally it was this street on his arm and he started talking about, I mean the championship in those days which was 46 games a season plus cup games and it was always two games a week. He went, I wish you played more games, Mike. I said, I wish you played more games. It's not enough, 46. He said, I'd play Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday if I could. Because I played Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday as a kid. And I still believe that a lot of, lot of football, as much as they, as we all, we, our knowledge of the game now is better than ever. But don't lose that joyhood thrill of, childhood thrill of playing football. It's the whole point of it. And hopefully we still got a bit of that here. Is there, is there a game that is like football in that respect and I, you mentioned Aman I'm quite interested to hear about that I know you do work with the Ireland cricket team and that was a World T20 qualifiers which they managed to qualify for the World Cup in Australia um, is it the same in rugby cricket and I know darts is even one that you've uh, um... uh, rugby definitely they, they want to play with their mates there's a very good coach in, in rugby called I think called Rob Baxter Exeter Chiefs and two years ago they won the Premiership and then they won the European Cup and they defended it and this year it's not going so well and they're fourth and I think he speaks so much sense as a leader as a coach he doesn't dress up in my all-time hate which is management talk and jargon so they lost on Saturday Sunday and he went yeah we won best side one which wasn't us we deserved to get beaten because we didn't quite do this that and the other and that's it we just weren't quite as good as we should have been and didn't dress it up didn't dress it up going back to I think rugby is very much playing with your mates. Working in darts, I've worked in darts. I loved working in darts because they are literally still playing in the pub, but the pub's got 10,000 people going, go on, son, (laughs) triple 20. And I'm a big believer in people hanging on to that because otherwise it becomes your job. And if sport just becomes a job and a way of earning money, then you might lose that bit of thrill. It's my job, and I take it very seriously, but to come here this morning and park my car in front of the, the Brentford sign, it's the greatest day of your life. And I don't ever forget that. And I, I just can't see that bit of me dying yet because it's just too exciting. Because it, it's just an extraordinary way to, to, to earn a living. That greatest day of your life, it's an important point, I think, in a lot of psychology, is that the real challenge that we all have, and I, this is the one bit I've highlighted in red on my notes, is to live in the now. If, we, if there was someone that we were able to give us the magic potion for that then that person will be a, a, bit, a billionaire trillion. you'd be interviewing me now in Barbados well, in my well, castle wouldn't you um, so I'm going to ask you the question how do you achieve that I'm still trying to work it out and I think at times we get carried away with the next job the next contract the next task the next goal as in in, in target in life and I think the one thing that COVID taught a lot of people particularly taught me was being grateful for what you had Covid hit me brutally hard. I've had to downsize every aspect of my life, but actually, I'm as happy now as I've ever been, with less than I've ever had. And I think that although it sounds a bit wishy-washy, I keep I keep hammering on. These are st- when we come here, whether we're working as a physio, a chef, these are still some of the. It might not get ever much better than this. And just to be grateful for what you have, because if it was taken away from you, and it nearly was with Covid it leaves you pretty empty and football in COVID without fans much as though I'd love to have got promoted that year at Wembley and the rest of it in the end we did it in front of fans which was even better but football without fans was a fairly soulless sport without fans music without fans it meant less 
mm. a great deal. I got bored of watching football on the television when there were no fans in. And, and Fraser does scouting, so you were there watching games when there was no one there and it was a dry, sterile environment. But I guess the other thing I wanted to bring both Fraser and Lee back in on, talk about having things taken away. Lee was only for a year for you, um, but Fraser, you had football taken away from you permanently and you've spoken brilliantly and Mike will know that you've seen a lot that Mike, that, that Fraser said about this, about how difficult it is to come to terms with. And I was working alongside Fraser, seeing this impressive young man, thinking he's really progressing within our business. Oh great, isn't he doing well? I didn't know for a minute how much he was struggling. And it's amazing how we throw up these shields and Fraser was able to present himself to me. We've got a good relationship, but still, I didn't know about it. Um, we put these shields up, but we need to let them down. I think that was probably your key, because you made yourself vulnerable. I think it was with Stacey and your mum about it. We need to let them make ourselves vulnerable. You've got to take your mask, pardon the COVID pun here, but we all wear a mask. Maybe men wear masks more than women. I'm, I'm not even dare judge that one. But we all put a front on, we all put a mask on, because you don't want to be seen to be making, you know, as if you're a bit soft and weaknesses and the rest of it. So we're getting better at that, but we all wear a mask and football's got the biggest face mask on of all time because you daren't, you daren't let anything go. But I think footballers are getting, and football's getting a lot better at realising it's not as straightforward as you, as you think it is. And Fraser, I think the work he's doing now is vital because he said, look, I have issues in my life with A, B and C. You mentioned alcohol, for example, so I mentioned it to you. And your relationship with it, once you spoke about it, you're a different man. A different man. I think I think with football as well, and with a lot of sports, you you have to. What well, I thought I had to, I was almost playing a character. I had to pretend to everyone that it didn't hurt as much when you were on the bench or not playing. You had to put on a front that you were really happy that the boys had won if, if they come in and, and you weren't involved in it. And you you try and portray this big strong character in a changing room, but a lot of people hide it in different ways, and a lot of people will project it in different ways. But how do you find that within within this club and clubs that you've worked with? Do you think it's something that players are becoming more open with in the in the time that you've spent in football? They've been in it. For I a, think for football per se is getting better. Yeah, it's it's getting better. I'd like to think this club here we really do care about the person who comes to this club. So if you if you spoke to Neil Morpai or Ollie Watkins or uh, Ezri Konza now doing so well at other clubs, if you spoke to people who are now playing. National, you know, National League football. They would still say how much they enjoyed their time at Brentford because they were looked after and valued. I know every team and every club wants to do that, but sometimes it doesn't always go as you want. And you might meet the old one here who says, "Oh, that was a disappointing time in my life." But I think you've got to look after the person as much as look after the footballer every single time. And I think we try to do that because we know that there'll be a life after this football club at some point, whether it's a higher league or. A, or lower league, or going or going overseas. We, you know, we've sold many players this year to overseas, and I still I still text them to find out how they're doing because it's important you, that you still have a have a you know have a concern for them. And look, we spend so much of our time in our working environments. You know, I, I will think about and talk to Fraser and Lee all the time because they are part of this business, this family that we've created. It's the same for football clubs. And actually, one, I want to go, this is a really deep one. I'm sorry to throw this one at you, but I've, I think during the COVID pandemic, during the, the, the troubles in Ukraine and everything else, we, we kind of think about mortality, we think about tragedy. Uh, and I'm very conscious we're here at Brentford where tragically, now four years ago now, we lost Rob Brown, um, who's a type technical director at, at Brentford. Really kind of ahead of his time, and he was doing some great things at Brentford was hugely missed. And I don't want to ask specifically about Rob and losing Rob, um, but if you think it's relevant to talk about that, please do. Now how uh, does your role step in at points when tragedy step, um, comes in? And, um, and how does that impact the way that footballers are? Everyone reacts differently. And I can recall, I know where I was when I got a phone call from my line manager. I was in central London doing a different day's work. And I thought, gosh, he doesn't normally ring me at 11 o'clock on a Thursday. And I took the call and he told me the, the dreadful news of what had happened. And just to show you what, how Rob's legacy, and it is, you can use that word easily with Rob. I was saying this morning over a cup of coffee in the, in the canteen, talking about, uh, actually the, the, the stuff I was talking about, about the programme of the week and, and how Suzanne Rowan still gets in touch with people. 
And I just said this morning in conversation, God, we miss Rob. And four years later, we still talk about Rob and about his impact and about I mean, his brilliance and his almost bordering on genius. Um, so when we, look, when we lost Rob, and, and that's why we've got the memorial board there, I remember one day just innocently saying, this is true, I said, look at all those wonderful players he's found. We should have a board saying, the, call it the Rob Rowe Memorial Board or something. And I just sent a throwaway comment. I kid you not, I came back the next week and there it was. Someone had heard it and had gone away and put out a lovely marble board, which is the Rob Rowan Memorial Board. The last one you saw there was Mansfield Strip. So anyone who's played for the first team, who's come through the system Rob helped set up, which was the B team, goes on the Rob Rowan board. Uh, and it was, it was a brutal time. And I think a lot of what we do now, we, I mean, gosh, I'd lose count the number of times I say, how much would Rob would have enjoyed that? I wonder what Rob would do now, or what would Rob be doing for the next phase of recruitment? He, he, he left a huge, Gap, but also a huge legacy. He was a remarkable young man. I only knew him for a short period of my life, but he, he left an impression. And everyone was devastated, but we all react in different ways. Some go private, some go external. But we, this is a very open club. We talk a lot here. And as you can tell from this podcast, I don't mind talking. And I will try and start conversations. Uh, but I also respect that some people are more introverted, more private, and won't want to talk as much. So I certainly won't go around saying, what do you think? Well, I know that he wants 24 hours to think about it, as they do. And some players do want... Tr- Remember a player once for a team was asked to talk to the team, you know, give me 24 hours. With me, give me 24 seconds, but that's my nature. He wanted 24 hours. Do you have a, a relationship with every player in the squad? I'd like to think that if I passed them in a street in five years' time and they saw me crossing the road, they'd go, Mike, what's he doing here? <laughs> I know them all. Yeah. I, I work on a third, a third, a third which again might shock people a third you're very close to phone numbers messages good lucks how are you getting on phone calls in between even coming down to see me where I live and go out for a dog walk a third will be pretty good terms always on good terms and then roughly a third you think I, I get them very well but I'm not going to intrude in his, yeah. and text him at home because he doesn't want that, and I know he doesn't want that yeah. and in fact I'm pretty sure he doesn't want that either so it's a third a third a third but I'd like to think that with all we've been through here that if we bumped into them five years time at a station or cafe somewhere they go Mike good to see you and we'd start talking again so I'd like to think there's something there between all of us we're a pretty tight group and I want to ask about the manager actually there's um, my, my mates won't forgive me if I don't use this quote there was uh, Alan Ball was being interviewed on match of the day when he was Man City manager a long time ago we always chuckled about it. They asked him, how are you going to go and, go and lift your players? And his response was, who lifts the manager? It's a two-way thing, he says. Um, but it can be, I think, very lonely to be a manager. You, you, you mentioned a lot of good men that you've worked with there as, as managers. I mean, um, obviously, without giving away any confidential information about your relationship with Thomas, Thomas is obviously a very capable human being. He's looked at as a leader of this Brentford team. And because he's been very successful, we could be forgiven for thinking, well, nothing will impact him, nothing will affect him, he's in charge, look, he's all really well put together mentally, etc. But the strain of managers is huge, which is where I think a role like yours is very important, isn't it? Well, we go for a dog walk once a week, and he, he'll admit that, and I will admit that, and it's been seen on film and camera and everything else, and that's half the reason, well, not, not why Paisley comes in, but um, of all the clubs I've worked at, I've raised at the head coach or the manager, that is the loneliest position of all because even if you come across as a man and woman of iron it hurts when you get beaten and I've done far too many LMA courses and uh, pro license courses when people are going on to be coaches it's a lonely old place and if I can have a, a safe and I think I've got a very good relationship with Thomas and Dean Smith before before he left here uh, and they enjoy my company I'm a, and I'm sometimes allowed to ask the questions which no one else does because it's safe for me to ask. I'm not there going, you should pick him, you should... So I've never been involved in my entire career in football in a conversation around selection or recruitment or releasing players, because that's not my skill. Alan Ball was dead right. Who picks the manager up? Arsene Wenger, who motivates the manager? Jurgen Klopp, at the end of last season, I, was, I just had to get away. I just couldn't face another day of football. So I do look out for the coaches and the support staff as well, and particularly the head coach, because it's exhausting, because you never get two minutes to yourself. Even when you're in bed alone, you're thinking about selection for Saturday and the next window. It's just relentless. And so if I can offer some clarity, 
and a different and some interesting questions and some good company not dressed in a tracksuit if that helps that little bit well then I'll do it and I think they enjoy the company too do you think it almost helps that you haven't come from a you haven't played 500 games in, in the league and you haven't managed and you, you you come from a slightly different background to a lot of people in the environment I think it's my greatest strength and therefore it's also my greatest weakness sadly because it does help that I haven't just go yeah he should slot in there and he should do that also which is a real blow is actually one of the players saying Mike I was watching that documentary on the Munich disaster this morning Man United from 1958 and he asked me about it and I just gave him five minutes and he, and he went how do, you, how do you know all that I said because I've been watching footballs and that was the first game I ever watched live on TV it was 1968 so I've been watching football for a long time now and Sometimes I wish people wouldn't in football think, actually, I do know football. I like football. Now, am I, have I got the punditry skills of Gary Neville? No. Have I got the, the, the analysis skills of a fully trained analyst? No. But I've got some knowledge. And I also, can I, this isn't a swear word, but I bloody love it. It fascinates me because it's the jigsaw you can't solve. You can never solve football. It's insoluble. You, you just you think you've got there, there's a piece missing. Well, that, it, which brings me to a question I have is... Um, this is a naughty question, really, but how can a footballer ever be happy? Because he will always fail. And what I mean by that is, so, for example, Ronaldo didn't have his perfect end at Manchester United. Lionel Messi hasn't won the World Cup, perhaps never will. There's no such thing as Roy of the Rovers. Even those two have, who have lived the dream, and anyone who loves football would have given anything to do what they've done, there will always be failure associated with football. And, and, and the, the one that comes up a lot within Liverpool is their closest version of Roy and Rovers, Steven Gerrard. What's he always reminded of is the slip against Chelsea. There will always be regrets as a footballer, which seems incredibly unfair. But there must be gratitude too, and appreciation, and I stress that. And um, I think you, you've always mentioned three outliers there, because you know, Me Messi, Ronaldo and, and Gerrard, and I'm sat opposite Fraser, who you didn't quite hit those levels, did you? It wasn't for lack of effort. It wasn't for lack of effort. It really wasn't. So I think that I still, I call it the mirror test. If you can look yourself in the mirror at the end of it all and go, I did my best. Now, that might be League Two, that might be non-League, that might be Argentina, Barcelona, PSG and a string of Ballon d'Ors. As long as you can look yourself in the mirror and go, I gave that a right good go then I think you've got a pretty good chance of living the rest of your life in peace. And so those three players, Messi, Messi Ronaldo and Gerard, will live their life in peace. I hope Fraser also lives his life in peace because he's accepted that it didn't go as he wanted, injury didn't help, he sorted one or two things out which were bugging him and now he's living a brilliantly clean, healthy, happy life. He's got every right now to be as happy as Stephen Gerrard and possibly is. Maybe not as rich, but, but th th that's just a number as well if I'm being a bit waffly there because... You only need so much. I'm reminded, I watched Forrest Gump with my kids recently, it's the first time they've seen it. Um, and it's a, it's a remarkable film, and a lot of the, kind, uh, the, the, the uh, psychology points that come in there are, are absolutely right. The, the one was the quote from Forrest Mum, which is, uh, a man only needs a certain amount of wealth and everything else is showing off. And I thought that was so... so it's, it's true, it's true. My dad would say, you know, you see one bed at a time. I don't know what he meant. But I do know what he meant. And you only need so much. Um, but going back to your point of gratitude and, and all that goes with it, if, if Ronaldo retires dissatisfied, well, then I'm giving up because that's, that's not been a too shabby career. And deep down, I think he is immensely proud of what he's still doing. Uh, because, and driven by his mum and the story with his mum. There's still a very human thing, even at that absurd level where you've got to you know, put your Instagram post out because you're eating your new pot noodle partner, whatever it is. But still, deep down, I think he loves what he does. He loves playing football. He's got a bit of boyhood charm, playfulness still about him. And he's making his mum proud. And that will do for me. I think, I think that point you just said there, I think there's, there'll be billionaires out there that are still trying to chase the feeling that you've got of walking in here going, how lucky am I? I'm glad you say that because I was thinking of certain billionaires this morning driving in as you heard a certain story about certain billionaires. And I'm not going to swear again, apologies for that, but they just always look so miserable because they can't ever have enough. They can't have enough. They've got four yachts, they want five. They've got three castles, they want four. They want, they just want more and bigger. And, and I just think there's, there's more meaning to stuff than that. And I would, 
it sounds a bit wet, but it's I mean it. I wouldn't swap for driving up the M4 this morning at half past five to come in here or get up at half past five and come in here because it means the world. And I've got everyone I think who I went to school with has done better than me and got made more money than me. And I still wouldn't swap because I've had more fun. I think that it sums up the, um, you know, when your last dog Shanky passed away. Um, I know the, the boys got together in there and presented you with a shirt with his name on. And it hangs proudly at home. And I saw, I saw the quote that went with it that said um, they could have bought me a Ferrari and it wouldn't have meant as much. It wouldn't. And I was saying to one of the players this morning in the treatment room about the Man United story because he, he was just watching it for the first time. He didn't know this, this had happened. And I said, if you walk into my little little cottage in Lambourne, to the right is a signed picture from Bobby Charlton, which my dad got me on my 10th birthday, which I've just recognised with my dad's handwriting, because it says, to Michael, best wishes Bobby Charlton. And I was like, that's my dad's writing. But to the left of it is the Shankly signed shirt from the players and when the dog passed away. So that's how much it meant to me. Now, it might mean that I won't ever become a castle-owning, yacht-owning psychologist, so what? I, I could not be having a better time. I really could not be having a more privileged and lucky time than working with an elite group of footballers and staff trying to achieve something pretty incredible, which is staying in the Premier League. And that will do, f and that really is, that's every box tick for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Football Journeys. You can follow us on social media on both Twitter and Instagram at JourneysPod. To support the pod and get early access, premium content and all the other advantages that we can send your way, sign up on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash football journeys. For just £2 per month, you'll be helping to fund the cost of producing this podcast whilst also getting benefits that other listeners don't. This is Football Journeys. <laughs>